If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to John chapter 10. In just a moment, we'll be reading from verses 31 to the end of the chapter. Since the foundation of time, man has sought to displace God sort of at the top of the food chain. Every act of sin that we do is an act of striking at the very image of God. It is striking at the fact that God is ruler and authority and sovereign over all things. And we think that we know better. We think that we can do better. We place ourselves above him and we say that we are God. It is striking then to read what we will read today. It is a difficult passage Difficult passages come and difficult passages go. This is difficult for a number of different reasons, not least of which is the fact that Jesus seems to call us God as well as himself. We're accustomed to him saying these things about him, but not about us. What we seek to do today, then, is simply to provide some sort of clarity uh, to what is going on in this passage, to the emphasis of this passage, and even to what we know to be true about this passage, not only in John chapter 10, but also from Psalm 82. We will probably not clarify everything. We will probably not make it wholly understandable to everyone. But what we seek is simply to give you kind of a handhold, a, a way to, to wrestle with this difficult passage, to understand it in its context here and in Psalm 82 and to see how the two help one another. The idea is simply this, that we will be able to speak about this passage well enough that we can have a, a, and leave with a better understanding of what both John and Jesus are doing by referencing Psalm 82.6 in this passage where Jesus says, I said, you are gods. And what's more, that we can see this not as a stumbling block to our faith, but as a passage that builds up our faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God. Let us then go to the passage and read, beginning in verse 31. This is after Jesus has said, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father has consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign. Everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. This is the word of our God. As we contemplate this very difficult passage, I first want to talk about what Jesus' point is in mentioning Psalm 82.6, I said you are gods. This is clearly the sticking point of this passage. It is clearly kind of the, the the most important part of the passage and the most difficult part of the passage. So what was Jesus' point in 
saying this. At the very least, the point is this, and it's something that we're going to emphasize time and time again as we work through this passage, that you are to focus on Jesus' works before you criticize him. Focus on Jesus' works before you criticize him. And it helps to see this if we kind of consider the larger portion of John's gospel that we have read so far. The first half of John's gospel is typically called the book of signs, primarily because these are where the signs that Jesus performs are done. These are where the miracles are actually listed for us. And these miracles have a significance. That's why they're called the book of signs. The significance is pointing at who Jesus is and what he has come to do. We know this because John basically tells us that this is what's going on all the way back in John 20. We read there at the very end of that chapter, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John says, listen, I didn't pick out every miracles, but I picked out specific miracles, and I did so so that in reading about them and seeing the miracles, you would know that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the prophesied one who was to come to be the king over all of Israel, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. Jesus clearly understands that it's to be taken this way. He's clearly pointing people away from what he is saying and to his works. Notice he does this in verse 38. In verse 38 he says, If I do the works of God, even though you do not believe me. He's saying even if the words I speak sound ridiculous to you, even if they make no sense to you, if I'm doing God's works, then at least believe in the works. Trust in those Jesus says the same thing further back in verse 25 or something close to it. He answered them, I told you and you do not believe. I spoke to you, but you didn't get it. I spoke to you, but you didn't trust what I was saying. And he goes on to say, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. This is the same idea that you have all the way up in chapter 5, where they don't like the fact that he healed on the Sabbath. And his point is simply this. Listen, follow the works. See the works. They testify about me. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Do you want to know who I am? Do you want to trust that I am actually the Son of God? Then don't have to believe what I say. All you've got to do is look at the works. Focus on the miracles. Focus on what I'm doing. If my words are a little bit difficult for you, if what I'm claiming for myself is a little bit difficult for you to swallow, Take some sugar of miracle with it, and it goes down a little bit smoother. This is exactly what's happening back in chapter 9. When they are criticizing this man who was blind but then healed and given his sight, the man continually focuses on the work that Jesus has done. I was blind, but now I see. He goes on to say, if this man were a sinner, he could do nothing. The man is convinced about the goodness and the truthfulness of Jesus. He is convinced that he's not a sinner because he opened his eyes. And yet, the people who are judging him, the people who are ruling over him, the people who are putting him on trial, they don't care at all about the miracle. Once the miracle is established, they brush it off and they go back to the fact that he's a sinner simply because he healed on the Sabbath. Focus on the work. This is precisely what's happening even in John 7.31. The people who have believed in him, the people who respond well, are those who focus on the works of Christ. Many people believed in him, 
In 731, they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man? So I think at the very least what Jesus is trying to say is, if you focus on my work, what I'm claiming for myself is of secondary importance. Focus on the work, and then you'll be in a better position to accept my word. Listen to how this plays out. Even in a passage that we've skimmed over, but we've referenced a couple of times back in chapter 10, verses 19 through 20. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Again, the focus there is on what he is speaking. Why should we listen to what he's saying? Because what he is saying sounds crazy to us. And listen to the response of those who actually believe. Others said, these aren't the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Why? How do they know that? What's the difference between them? Their next question kind of answers that for us. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? As they focus on what Jesus does, they say, listen, I, I can't possibly imagine that this man has a demon because he's doing works that only God can do. And so as you focus on the works of Christ, the difficult things that he has to say to us are much more palatable This isn't just a feature of John's gospel either. This is a feature prominently in Mark's gospel. One of the first miracles that Jesus does is the healing of the paralytic. His friends lower him through the ceiling and he looks at him and he says, "Ah, your faith, man, I forgive you for your sins. And people around him freak out. You can't forgive sins. And so Jesus gives him a little test. He says, okay, well, what's more difficult for me to say I forgive your sins or to look at this paralytic and say, get up, take your mat, and walk. He then turns around and he says, but so that you would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, so that you will trust what I say is true, I will look at him and I will heal him and I tell him, get up, take your mat, and walk. This is how the miracles function for us. This is why it is important that we hold on to the miracles. What so many people in our world want to do is they want to say, listen, miracles are really kind of unscientific. They don't fit well with the culture that we're in. We need to downplay the miracles to make Jesus more palatable for people. And what scripture honestly seems to be holding out is precisely the opposite. That if you get rid of the miracles, listening to what Jesus says is insane. It's insane. Somebody who claims to be God but cannot perform miracles isn't God. He is insane. He has a demon. This is exactly the opposite of the way that Scripture unrolls things for us. Cling onto the miracles. Understand that the miracles have happened, and then you are in a much better position to accept Jesus Christ as the Son of God. They are simply going to end up in a wily e. coyote position as he is running off the edge of a cliff and he hangs there for just a second before he falls into the pit with just an outline surrounding him. Anyone who knows what I'm talking about knows what I'm talking about. Those of you who don't, you should go home and YouTube Wally Coyote. It'll be fun for an afternoon. This is exactly what's happening. The ground upon which we understand Jesus Christ are his miracles. And when we remove that ground from him, he hangs in midair, if but only for a second. And then he will fall away. And what you are left with is an imprint of what Jesus Christ should be without any substance at all. You've vacated him. You've removed him from being truly human or from being truly God or from being truly helpful or from truly being able to remove your sin. There's nothing there but air. 
The question becomes then, how does this play out in our passage? Notice verse 32. Jesus seems to be playing fairly coy with them. He has, I'm sure, no doubt the fact that they have picked up stones because he said the Father and I are one. So it seems a bit odd that he turns around and says to him, for what work are you going to stone me? He knows that it's not because of a work that they're going to stone him. He knows it's because of what he has just said because every time they pick up stones to stone him, it's because of something that has just come out of his mouth. So he knows very well this is a pattern that has been played out. But the reason why he asks that is to focus again and to force their focus again back to the works. What works? Talk to me about my works. Think about the works. But of course, it's not because of their works. As much as Jesus' purpose is totally clear, so is theirs. It's not because of your works, I say. It's because you are blaspheming and making yourself out to be God. While the ESV kind of collapses these in, there's two different charges that are brought against him. First, he's blaspheming. He's, he's slandering God. He's bringing God down. He is making God less. And secondly, he is elevating himself to be like God. These are the two problems that they have. And certainly these are worthy of exactly the punishment that they are going to mete out. But not if it's true. Jesus neither denigrates the deity of God by coming down and taking on human form. Neither does he elevate his humanity to a place that does not belong in. But their problem clearly lies in his claim. And again, I think it behooves us to see how all of this is unfolding before us. Jesus wants them more than anything else to focus on what he has been doing. Stop worrying about what I'm speaking and start worrying about what you see me doing. When you see his works playing out, it's hard to come to any other conclusion than the fact that God is actually working with him. God has got a hand in what he is doing. This is exactly the testimony that the blind man had before the council. He said, I don't know what to tell you. I've told you already. I'll tell you again. If this man were a sinner, he could do nothing. If we look at his works, we can see that the Father and Jesus are indeed one. We stop asking the question, if this is true, and we start asking better questions like, how is this true? If God is with him, we should listen to him. But this group of Jews, so focused on his claims first, do so to their detriment. They don't see the testimony of God in his works. They don't believe in his word. Jesus then addresses this problem by referring to scripture and referring to Psalm 82, 6, which brings us to point two, which is, of course, the problem. This particular passage is very difficult, and I hope simply to kind of make it less baffling for you what Jesus is doing and what the scripture is actually doing back in Psalm 82. Usually when we ask a question of this, we kind of conflate two questions together that I'm going to kind of pull apart. The question that is typically asked is, what does Jesus mean by this? I want to I use that in two different pieces. The first is simply, how is Jesus actually using Psalm 82.6 here? Not what does he mean by it, but, but what is its use in his argument? What is its use in its, his back and forth with the people who are arguing with him here? Is he just proof texting? What good or benefit does mentioning this have to do for him? What does he gain by mentioning this? And secondly, I think it will help to say what this passage actually means. What does Psalm 82 itself actually mean in context? We'll take the first question first. 
How does Jesus actually use this quotation? What does Jesus actually want to accomplish by using this? First, let's be very clear what he cannot be meaning by it. Jesus, in John more than anywhere else, claims a unique sonship with God. As a matter of fact, his sonship is so unique, he never, ever refers to God as our Father. The only time those words ever come off of his lips are in the Lord's Prayer where he is teaching his disciples to utter those words, and he is only uttering them vicariously through them. Otherwise, it is always my God and your God. As a matter of fact, later in the book of John, he says that specifically. Instead of saying our God, he says my Father and your Father. It is clear that he always distinguishes between the two. And it is clear that Jesus feels as though he has a very unique sonship. It is not shared by anybody else. So any understanding of this passage, which has Jesus coming in and kind of laying flat the groundwork and saying, listen, you guys are focusing on me calling myself God or or you think that I'm calling myself God. Just don't worry about it. You're God, I'm God, we're all God. Let's go on happy flappy, right? That is clearly not what Jesus is doing and it's clearly not what this could ever possibly mean. So while scripture says you are gods, we have to understand that that cannot possibly be the same thing as Jesus being called the word of God with God in the beginning and God in the beginning, okay? It cannot possibly mean that. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that we have exhausted the nature of what this is. It is clearly an argument from the lesser to the greater. What he is at least saying is scripture speaks highly of you, Scripture speaks highly of whom the word of God has come. Notice, this is not for angels. It's not for other deities. It is precisely for the people to whom the scripture came. And that is the Jewish people. That is the Israelites. It's for them that these things were spoken. So if scripture speaks this highly of you, he says, how much more must it speak of these things about me? So remember, Jesus wants them to focus on works, not their words. So what does he do? He elicits a passage from scripture that allows him to negate their problem and essentially negate their argument. Their problem is, we don't believe you because you're claiming to be God. And Jesus very clearly says, I don't know what your problem is. Scripture claims you're God. Scripture says you are gods. And he says, scripture can't be broken. You guys can't ignore this. You can't turn your back on it. So in essence, stop worrying about the language that I'm using, and again, focus on my works. In showing them that their problems are unscriptural, he brings them back to the issue of works. Again, he pushes them back there. If I am not doing the works of my Father, in verse 37, then do not believe me. If you don't want to believe my words, that's fine, but continue to press on the works. Look at what I'm saying. This is certainly a step in the right direction. D.A. Carson says this, Jesus is not using this argument to prove that he is God or the Son of God in the full-blooded sense propounded in this gospel. In that case, the argumentation would be utterly without merit. The stated context, mob humors heated to the threshold of explosive violence, does not provide him with the leisure for cool theological dialogue. So he administers a short, sharp shock, a scriptural reason why they should not take umbrage just because he calls himself the Son of God. That is certainly a step in the right direction, although Dr. Carson, I don't think, goes nearly far enough. We can do better than that. But at the very least, it's worthwhile noting the kind of argument that Jesus is making. If Scripture calls the people, the Word of God comes to gods. 
then how much more should the one who is consecrated and sent into the world be able to be thought of as the son of God? Augustine uses this. He uses several different pictures of this. If they are lamps that are lit, then how much more is a flame true in the one who has lit them? If they are brought into fellowship of deity, how much more the one who brings them into the fellowship of deity? If the word of God came to men saying that they were gods, how much more is the word itself God? That is how the argument is working, at least in part. But again, I think that we can do better. And that brings us to the second question. And that is, what in the world, what in the world does Psalm 82.6 mean by saying, I said, you are gods? That is a much more difficult question. Fortunately, you don't have to turn back in your Bibles to find Psalm 82.6. You can look at your bulletin, so you can have your Bibles open in front of you, and you can have your bulletin in your hand, and you can look at Psalm 82.6 there and understand what we're talking about as we look at Psalm 82 as a whole. About this little word, gods. There's a couple of problems that we have in English that they didn't have back in their day. When we read in Psalm 82, we can clearly identify God versus gods because one, when we talk about things that we think are not God, we not only use a lowercase g on them, but we also make it plural. The problem is, in the original, it was plural for both. Elohim is a plural word. Elohim is the word that is used both for lowercase gods and for uppercase God. There is no differentiation. So for instance, if you look here and he says, I said you are gods, that word gods is the same word that begins Psalm 82 that says God. There is no difference in the Hebrew. Okay? So while in English we can kind of look at that and say, well, you know, the words are different, we lowercase it, but that's not the case in the original languages. It just wasn't the way that it worked. And frankly, we need to come to grips with something, and this is probably going to be difficult, so just hang on, and we'll get back to the point here in a second. The Old Testament uses the word God and God's Elohim differently than we do. It just it uses it differently. It can refer to a number of beings, both usually and typically angelic, but here in Psalm 82, clearly referring to the people of God. It's used for angels, for instance, in the um, in the book of Exodus, in the book of Job, in the book of Daniel, it refers to angels or rulers or leaders who are spiritual as gods. So for instance, in Exodus 12, 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute my judgments. I am the Lord. Now, you can stop and you can say, well, there are no gods in Egypt. There's only one true and living God. Amen and amen. We'll get back to that. But it's hard to think that he is simply executing judgment on the idea of a deity that doesn't actually exist. He's not executing judgments on imaginations. He's executing judgments on real beings. Job 1.6 uses the same kind of language to talk about the sons of God. The sons of God in both Job 1.6 and in 2.1 gather together, clearly referring to angels. Daniel 3.25 does something along the same lines. To kind of come to grips with this, realize that we talk about our Lord Jesus Christ using the same kind of language. When we use the language of Lord, we mean a category of people who rule over a set piece of property or something like that. We don't use it very much anymore. But imagine that you're back in the 17th century in England and there's somebody named 
like Lord Brighton Snodgrass the fourth, and he is he is the ruler over that area of land, and they would call him Lord. He is the Lord of that manor. He is the Lord of that house. Well, we would use the same title of Lord for him that we use for Jesus, but that doesn't mean we think that he and Jesus are the same or equal. Okay, we have an expression that simplifies that for us. We have it in our language because it's in the original languages, and that is that Jesus is not just Lord; he is Lord of lords. Of all of the lords of the earth, he stands as Lord above them. This is precisely how the Bible understands God. God is not the same as all of the other gods. He might be in the same categorization as God, as some sort of being that has a function in the world, and we're going to talk about what that function is. But he is clearly separate and unique and distinct from all of them. Listen to how the book of Deuteronomy puts this. For the Lord, Yahweh, Retreat. That Lord there is capitalized, so we'll say his full name. Yahweh, your God, is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. So he is like these other beings in some way, but he is wholly different in almost every other way. There is some function that God carries out that he allows other beings to carry out and act as gods as they carry out that function. But he is distinct and simply different from all of them. And so this function is laid out for us here in the psalm. Notice God calls all of these together and he actually judges them. It says that he holds judgment, but he holds judgment against them in this. And he brings that judgment against them. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the, of the needy, or excuse me, from the hand of the wicked. They don't do those functions. That is the function that God was supposed to carry out. These lowercase g gods are to judge, to manage, and to care for the world. They are to act as the images of God in the world. They are his vice regents. They are the ones that he has sent into the world to manage it and to care for it. Not because he can't do that, but because he's a gracious God who wants people to share in his being. We know that here in Psalm 82, This is not referring to fallen angels or anything like that, which we would be prone to believing because Jesus specifically says he calls them God to whom the word came. That word didn't come to angels, it came to Israel. So Israel was supposed to do all these things. They were supposed to give justice to the weak and the fatherless. They were supposed to maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, to rescue the weak and the needy. And they flat out failed continuously. Evermore, they flat out failed. God says that I would have treated you like sons of the Most High. The, the idea there is, is never-ending life. I, I would have made you like me. It says, but you failed, so you will die like every other man. This is precisely, by the way, the function that Jesus carries out in the world. Jesus came to give justice to the weak and the oppressed. He will judge all those who oppress others. He will lift up those who are powerless, and he will set the world to rights. He upholds always what is right and what God has desired in the law. As Jesus himself said, he always does what pleases the Father. His works tell of his great love and care for people. He heals them. He gives life to them. He cares for them, even the least. Whether they're lame or they're blind or they're a Samaritan woman, he clearly loves them and cares for them all. 
And of course, he rescues the needy from the hand of the wicked. He pulls his sheep out of the mouth of wolves. He defeats all of our enemies. He shuts up the accuser of the brethren who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He destroys them and is victorious over them all. He does everything that is laid out here. Jesus is the one who carries out all of these functions. And while it was supposed to be Israel as a whole, they have failed every single one of them. Notice they walk around with no knowledge or understanding. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. But Jesus' works take away the darkness. We just got done with John 9. The blind receive sight. And what does John say Jesus will give to those who see his works truly in verse 38? He says, believe the works that you may know and understand. He gives knowledge and understanding to them. The Israelites were always supposed to be God's son. They were supposed to walk as God would have walked among the nations, but they refused to. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus does exactly what the Son of God ought to do. He does exactly what God would have done in walking in holiness and in uprightness and in justice before the nations. Therefore, Jesus is not simply saying that they should be less worried about his words, especially surrounding the idea that he is the Son of God. But rather, especially in this passage, he is stressing as the proof of his being the son of God, his works. Because just as Psalm 82 has said, so he says in the book of John, look at my works. What ought the sons of God do? Psalm 82 lists it out. John is saying that Jesus has said, look at my works and you can tell that I am truly who I'm claiming to be. He is the unique son. He is not just the one that others, like others, that are patterned around He is the true son from before time began. He is consecrated and sent into the world. Jesus doesn't suffer from the same problems that the people of Israel did. He doesn't judge unjustly. He doesn't oppress. He doesn't keep from the help of those who are poor and needy, but he holds out justice and righteousness for the poor. Again, Psalm 82 talks about the Jews walking here, or all of Israel, walking without knowledge and without understanding. It's interesting that those two synonyms find their way back to back in the very words that Jesus uses in John 10 when he says, I will give you knowledge and understanding that you may know and understand. That is really weird because those are the exact two same words in Greek. They're conjugated differently, but they're the exact same word for know and understand. We... we, treat it differently in English because, frankly, the translators thought, that sounds ridiculous. And it would, if not being directly linked to Psalm 82. Seeing all of the works of God will make it clear. They will know and understand that the Father is in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father and they are indeed one. The one God has called an assembly of all of his vice reasons, all these gods on earth that they had failed, but this Jesus has not failed. He has upheld the standard of Psalm 82 impeccably and therefore is rightfully called God's son. Far from simply dismissing their argument as ridiculous, the quotation of Psalm 82 supports and furthers Jesus' argument. If they paid attention to his works, they would know that he's truly the son. So what is the payoff of all this for us? Three brief things. First, scripture is a help and a guide. 
It is a help and a guide. It will never lead you wrong so long as you are patient and read it with eyes firmly fixed on Christ. Scripture will indeed be confusing and difficult to reconcile with experience and even with other scripture if you don't read it with Christ at the center of your focus. Psalm 82 makes no sense unless you read it that way. But even with him there and assuming that it's all about him, it comes into perfect clarity, even if it does. It will still be difficult to digest. I don't think that we're going to clarify everything here. But reading scripture with Jesus at the center of all of our attention makes it make sense. We shouldn't ever be embarrassed by the word. This can be embarrassing. Not embarrassing like it says something ridiculous, but it kind of says something ridiculous. It says something that doesn't sit well with us. You are God's. This is the very thing that Christians continue to tell people, you are not. And here is Jesus saying, you are. And we can be embarrassed by it. But be patient with it. Seek understanding. Trust that Jesus is right. Trust that the Bible is right. And see what it is that they mean. Secondly, we are encouraged strongly to look at his works when we doubt his words. Jesus is going to say all kinds of difficult things to you. He is going to tell you to take up your cross daily and to follow him. He is going to tell you to lay down your life for others. He is going to ask you to do things daily. He is going to ask you to spend your life for him and for his kingdom. And there will be times in which you are going to doubt the goodness and doubt the rightness of what he asks you to do. And in those moments, Jesus says, look at my works. Because his works prove two things. That one, when he tells you to do something and he says it's worth it for you, that anything that he promises to you, he has the authority to make happen. If he can make bread from nothing, friend, he can reward you immensely for your work. And two, the miracles also prove his compassion and his care for people. That he is not asking you to do anything that is not good for you. He cares for you and he loves you and he's leading you well. And those two things combined together are incredibly important. That he has the authority to make his promises true and he has the compassion to ask you to do things that are for your good. Look at his works when you doubt his word. Thirdly, clearly we don't have to rely on our works. Listen to verses 40 through 42. Jesus went away again across the Jordan to the place where he had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John, John's a great man. He did no sign. He was a prophet from God who did no miracles. He dunked people in a river and told them to repent. He said, John did no sign, but everything that he said about this man was true. Friend, this is... Such good news for us. You probably have never done miracles or signs, anything powerful or mighty on your own, and you may fail miserably at the things that you should do, but your goal is not to make people who look like you. Your goal is not to tell people of your goodness and your uprightness and of all the nice things that you have done. Your goal in evangelizing, your goal in living your life is to live a life that points at one who does all those things and more. You don't need to carry the weight of being perfect. Jesus does that. So don't rely on your works. Don't rely on the fact that you can do things well enough to be a sign for the people. 
Your job is to speak well of what Jesus Christ has done, to speak of the one who is the rightful judge, to speak of the one who is the good shepherd, to speak of the one who is able to save us to the utmost. So yes, folks, we are all gods. We are all gods in the sense that we carry out the function of God in this world, ruling, judging, and ordering the world according to righteousness and justice. And yes, friend, you are going to fail. You're going to fail time and time again. You will seek your own good, and you will seek your own standing. We will seek our own rights. We will be fine having the rights of others trampled so that we can gain access to our own. We would show partiality to the wicked if we knew that it gained some advantage for us. And yes, this might not be true for you as an individual. There are always individuals within any society who do good and right things and who want things rightly ordered. But as mankind's history has come down, these things are true of all of the nations. There is always oppression. There is always harm for the weak and the poor. There is always a lack of justice and wickedness always rules. Yet, here is Jesus, the true Son of God, who has come to be what we and our society could never be. Thank God for him. What we have continually failed to do, he has done right. In his coming to us, in his advent, he has come to save people from their sins. This means both their individual sins. As we rebel against God, as we make ourselves out to be the God, he has come to take the penalty of our rebellion and to set us free. But what's more, even in his death and resurrection, he doesn't just save us from our own sins, but he saves us from a world of sin, recreating and ushering in an entirely new life for the people who belong to him. One without sin one without suffering, where righteousness reigns in peace. He is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. He was born in humility, but he was always destined to be the inheritor of all of the nations. Look at his works and trust in his word, for in him alone is your salvation. Let's pray. Father, how gracious you are to have given us a revelation of yourself in your word, and most thoroughly in Jesus Christ. Give us sight to be able to see his works and to give him praise, to give us knowledge of who he is and to allow us to trust him more. Let this be our true desire, to see him more clearly and to trust him more. As the man said in Mark 9, Father, we believe but help our unbelief. May you do this today for our good and for your glory. Amen.